Hello, welcome to the Quest series. This is Alan Mulhern. A couple of announcements before we begin. Firstly, the Quest live lectures, which are in London and start on September the 28th, are now available for registration. This is for either personal attendance or you can, as it were, attend at a distance because audio downloads of the meeting are available and all the preparatory materials are available. Secondly, the 100-day meditation program, that is, meditating half an hour per day, has started again. This is done in our own homes and follows the text of The Secret of the Golden Flower, the ancient Taoist meditation guide, which also introduces one to the philosophy and metaphysics of Taoism, which accompanies us on our meditation journey. This is free, and you're welcome to join us if you think you'll benefit from such a programme. Contact details for both the above are at my website, alanmulhern.com. Thirdly, a correction. In the last podcast, I indicated that the Eleusian and Orphic mysteries were of Gnostic origin. This is not literally accurate, but it leads to a very interesting point, which we shall explore later in this podcast. Today I wish to elaborate on the nature of visionary experiences because firstly they are more common than is recognised and secondly because they are not sufficiently valued and their potential is neglected. I will begin by telling you one of my own. In 2012 I was walking in the foothills of the Pyrenees, a pilgrimage route in the hills of southern France. This is part of the famous Camino that crosses the mountains and winds along the northern coast of Spain to the Cathedral of Santiago del Compostela. We reached a village appropriately called Saint-Jean-de-Luz, and as we walked up the main steep street, I noticed many pilgrim memorabilia shops. Clearly this was still a route for pilgrims. I also noticed a pilgrimage museum, which was in a stone building, My wife and I entered and went from room to room where the relics, clothes, staffs and walking gear of the medieval pilgrims were still preserved, some on life-size models that created dramatic effects in the half-light of the thick stone-walled interior. I was struck by the different colours or identifications that belonged to the pilgrims from Germany, France, England, Austria and so on. Of course, I remember that the pilgrimages were a very important part of the Middle Ages, and millions of pilgrims went on them. As we were leaving the building, I noticed a stairway going down to the basement. I descended and found myself in a dark, very large room underlying the whole building, with earth and gravel floor, and small barred windows with shutters at one end. It was quite chilling. I turned on the light of my mobile phone, The large room was empty, but gradually I made out a separate but smaller room, again constructed from stone, in the corner. With my dim light I entered and found, at the far end, some iron manacles, where obviously prisoners had been kept. Probably this building had once served as a prison of some sort. As we left the building into the bright sunshine, all of this condensed in my mind, at first into the beautiful opera Fidelio, composed by Beethoven, where a prisoner, Florestan, is kept in chains underground by his cruel jailer and is rescued by his wife, Leonora.
as well as being a very dramatic story with strong political implications, freedom from tyranny, the French Revolution and so on. It resonates across the generations to those who know little about these political feelings of the past because it touches archetypal roots of human experience, actually which resemble the Gnostic myths quite closely, the spiritual imprisonment of human beings, the darkness within which we dwell, the light from the upper realms, the freedom from our debasement, the role of the messenger or messiah who comes to free us, and the enormously important role of the feminine. It's not that Beethoven knew anything of the Gnostics directly. Rather, what he and many others have experienced is archetypal. That is, built into the nature of human consciousness, as it struggles with darkness and seeks the light, as it objects to its lower condition and longs for the higher, as it struggles against its enslavement or imprisonment and yearns for liberty. There is no technology that can provide this freedom, though illusions there are in plenty. I predict that in the coming age, when we are fused with artificial intelligence, that the human psyche will cry out again for its liberation, this time from its technological jailers, the artificial intelligence that will bind us, and relink to the perennial traditions of spiritual freedom which include the Gnostics. Here, from Fidelio, is the song of the prisoners who are let into the light for a short period by Leonora. The words they sing are, Oh, what joy, once again, freely to breathe the fresh air. In heaven's light we live again. From death we have escaped. Such was the force of my experience in the basement dungeon of this stone house on the Camino that I began to conceive a mythological story of a pilgrim who seeks the light on his pilgrimage 
who falls into entrapment and darkness, but has a vision of the light. In the following year, as a result of being in the mountains of North Africa, a visionary force opened up within me. I was starting to conceive a book, The Sower and the Seed. For this I had a spirit guide or muse. In this case it was Isis, the Egyptian goddess, whom I treated as totally real, although her advice was sometimes counterintuitive and surprising, although always incredibly valuable. For example, it was her I consulted when I faltered at the base camp in the Atlas Mountains, exhausted from lack of sleep and mountain sickness. We had been three days in the heights already, and I was advised by everyone to stay and rest, while my daughter, a good mountaineer incidentally, and our small party would make the ascent next morning to Mount Tupkal in the snow and ice. I tended to agree. I felt at my physical end and I looked up at the peak in awe, feeling that it could kill me. However, I consulted Isis and she said, to my great surprise, rise and ascend, have complete confidence. Do not doubt this for a moment. I communicated this to our group and they shook their heads. We rose at 3am, had breakfast in the dark, assembled into our snow gear, including crampons for our feet for the ice. And I staggered out onto the slopes, trying to keep up with the party. From the start, I felt at a complete disadvantage, and I could see that our guide, a strong local Berber, and my daughter felt compromised, since they would probably have to escort the old man down the slopes, and they would miss the peak. I staggered from the start, unable to properly absorb the advice of our guide, and instead started taking my own erratic route up the mountain. Suffice it to say that this ascent turned into an altered state of consciousness, and I began to have visions, especially with the dawn, hear voices from another realm, remember poems or mystical sayings, and generally became possessed by archetypal forces that opened my eyes and ears. With the mountain sickness gripping me, I was almost passing out. My daughter began to insist on taking me down. I resisted, saying I had complete confidence in the ascent and that I would reach the top, no doubt. I collapsed numerous times and still many visions came. My daughter protested that this was meant to be a holiday and she could not possibly phone up her mother to say that I had died on the mountain. I could see no sense in this at all, and felt that here it would be ecstatic to die. Here was the place to die, in this glorious light, in the heights of the mountain. Well, to cut a long story short, we did ascend Mount Tubkal, myself with considerable help from the guide and my daughter, especially in the last few hundred metres. The ecstasy on reaching the top was beyond anything I had imagined, and the views stretched from the deserts of the Sahara in the south to the Mediterranean in the north. I felt in illuminated transcendence. Although one interpretation of this is that I had temporarily become unhinged by mountain sickness, nevertheless I had extraordinary visions of the light, the destiny of mankind, the nature of the soul, 
and so many other things that it seemed as if a vast experience had opened up and somehow I had been cleaned out of my previous existence. At least that was the feeling. I had to almost die in order to have these experiences. They were not available in my normal lower state. The immensity of such experiences is exhilarating, but many people feel a need to communicate them in some way, and this involves a transposition from a transcendental state, with extraordinary visions, informations, emotions and teaching, to a lower form of words in my case. How I envied the composer, whose music has a far more direct contact with the archetypal realm. The elevated metaphysical subject matter of visionary states is precisely what is so difficult to contact or experience in one's normal ego functioning. The upper levels of consciousness just filter it all out. But in these breakthrough experiences, the filter is bypassed and the material floods through, often with visionary intensity, threatening to overwhelm consciousness. And far from being mad, it all then seems to make so much sense. What one had dimly perceived before now becomes overwhelmingly real and undeniable. The lenses that blocked one's perception fall from one's eyes and one sees into the true nature of the world and our relation to it. This experience is a spiritual one and can be beautiful, at least in my experience, and also in everything that I have heard and read. However, it does not inform one of everything. It will tell you nothing of the details of science, economics or politics. It won't even say anything of evolution, although so many of these visions have concerned themselves with creation of the world and life. Such visions often concern the human condition, especially one's own, the nature of the world and cosmos, an opening of the senses to a world that feels miraculous and with which one is united in the most extraordinary manner, what Levi Bruhl calls participation mystique, a term much used by Jung. These experiences have an extraordinary way of opening one's eyes in an act of perception through which a vast dimension of meaning is glimpsed, but which feels as if it is transmitted and passing through one's psyche. One feels reborn and rejoices in this act of liberation and meaning. For me, and for many others, it feels at such moments as if a divine ground lies at the foundation of the world, and our psyche, which now manifests and frees itself, breaks through the imprisonment of ego consciousness. From this point of view, the opera Fidelio is not only an external story, but is symbolic of the inner opposites in the human psyche, light versus dark, or freedom versus imprisonment. The higher self and love are so often trapped by the lower aspects of ourselves, as well as the ego. I tried to capture something of these visions in a book called The Sower and the Seed, which concerns itself with the evolution of human consciousness from a mytho-psychological angle. The concept of imminence, the active presence of a vast intelligence within the evolutionary process is its underlying philosophy. The last section of it was called The Quest and is a story of a man on a pilgrimage who loses everything, enters into the darkness of his soul and then proceeds up a mountain 
where he asks fundamental questions about the nature of creation, the soul and the fate of the human race. I felt compelled to narrate this in the form of poems, accompanied by a small text of explanation, plus illustrations of the pilgrimage and ascent, which were drawn especially for the book by another Jungian analyst, Lindsay Harris, who understood what I had been through and what I was attempting to communicate. Many people have such experiences, which are a universal stratum of the psyche, the collective unconscious, and its archetypal representations, or, as Simon Margus would express it, the universal root. It was the German 19th century philosopher Schopenhauer who suggested that there were three ways to access the noumenal, that is, the underlying essence underneath the phenomenal world, in which we are trapped with all its striving, desire and disappointment, that is, in the phenomenal world. These access points, as it were, to the noumenal underneath were the experiences of sexuality, of compassionate love and music. We could add today a longer list that would include psychedelic drugs, near-death experiences, emotional and spiritual suffering, some types of illness, higher art forms in general, and sacred rituals that dismantle the ego and trigger the deep psyche. Young was one of those who were especially prone to such experiences, even from a very early age. The Seven Sermons, preceded by the visitation from the Christian spirits, is a good example of someone sorting himself out metaphysically after being taken to the edge of breakdown. They are essentially creative integration experiences in which the visions are assimilated and given form. I mentioned in the last week's podcast that Young's Seven Sermons to the Dead were the start of an initiation rite in which, after a descent to the underworld, his encounter with the dead Christian spirits, Young was then initiated through Philemon in a dismembering process, that is a disintegration, followed by a vision of the cosmos and the Great Mother, and instructions on what he had to do in order to become her child. This consisted of an undoing of his attachment relationships to other human beings, the commingling as it was called in the vision. This can all be read in the final pages of the Red Book, after the Seven Sermons. I suggested that Young may have been influenced by his knowledge of the Ophite Gnostics, not the Orphic, who were part of the Greek mysteries, but the Ophites, who were Gnostic. Since there is a mention of the serpent in Young's vision, and this symbol was central to the Ophites, and indeed many other Gnostics. The correction to last week's podcast is that, strictly speaking, the Eleusian and the Orphic Greek mystery schools were not Gnostic, since they were not entangled with the battle with the Judaic Bible, as we call it, or the Torah, or with Christianity. They were not of Jewish origin, but came in from Egypt and the Mediterranean. Nevertheless, while they do not have the mythological background of the Near Eastern Gnostics, they are essentially concerned with higher knowledge and how to attain it. And this is, of course, a gnosis. Actually, J.R.S. Mead, in his book Fragments of a Faith Forgotten, which was very influential for Young's view of the Gnostics, and was his principal reading in the early years, portrays the Greek mystery religions as being a precedent and then complementary to the Gnostics. He comments, quote, The institution of the mysteries is the most interesting phenomena in the study of religion. 
The idea of antiquity was that there was something to be known in religion, secrets or mysteries, into which it was possible to be initiated, that there was a gradual process of unfolding in things religious. In fine, that there was a science of the soul, a knowledge of things unseen. By implication, the Greek mystery religions and Gnosticism naturally flowed into one another. Also by implication, Jung's initiation, described in the Red Book, was a combination of the mystery religions of ancient Greece and the Gnostics. Now, the reason why I am emphasising this is because I will argue, increasingly during these podcasts, that it is precisely this combination of, firstly, the descent and rebirth rituals of the mystery religions, secondly, the radical, uncompromising pursuit of gnosis by the Gnostics, and thirdly, Jungian psychology, that will be a major characteristic of the spiritual movements that are to emerge in the 21st century in response to the spiritual crises of our times. Returning to the story of my experience on Mount Tukal, I also felt that I went through an initiation experience that was my individual journey. It had in the first part a near-death experience, a collapse, a type of madness, a disintegration, and in the second part it had an experience of the light and visions of enormous intensity that were profoundly transformative. In other words, it was a death and rebirth journey. As I tried to sort out my experiences, I composed 40 poems, each one advancing an exploration of the nature of human consciousness. This was already some considerable distance from the original experiences, which were not poems or teachings, but seemed to be in the form of an extraordinary light. This was what I experienced on the mountain. Incidentally, I had never composed poetry before, but Isis told me to rise to the task and have complete confidence. There should be no doubt, she said. I was also told that the poems would come to an end and then be turned off like a tap when they were finished. And so they were. Each one emerged from my deeper self, as if from a womb. They were like birth experiences, and although many were not of good quality, it was gratifying to have produced them. I felt as if I was helping them into existence rather than creating them. These kinds of visions are easily regarded as the products of madness. There are religions, such as Christianity, that have persecuted those who have mystical visions which are not in line with orthodoxy. There are others, such as Buddhists, who think such active imagination is another layer of illusion to which one should give no regard. Yet, because such experiences lie at the base of the psyche, in its natural state, they will continue to surface throughout history, even though they may be repressed. One way or another, they emerge. They can be understood as the displacement of the ego and the emergence of the deeper psyche, as already mentioned. The deep psyche is, to the ego, what the quantum world is to the material appearance of things. When one goes below the structure of matter, one eventually finds a world that seems contradictory, extraordinary and impossible to understand in the terms one is accustomed to. But eventually one perceives that its nature is utterly different to the surface of things, yet it determines the surface. 
the noumenal world determines the phenomenal world. All matter depends on the underlying quantum worlds, does it not? Well, it is the same with the ego and the deep psyche. Just as the observer affects the observed in the subatomic world, so too in the psyche. The ego, although it emerges from the deep psyche, interacts with it, affects it and changes it. There is a drama, a meeting of opposites. Although in certain individuals the spiritual components of the deep psyche may emerge unbidden, on the whole the deep psyche is more inclined to enter into consciousness when it is invited in, when the conditions are right, when there is active engagement by consciousness. Three interrelated conditions are pertinent. One, the cultural collective. Two, the group surrounding the individual. And three, individuals themselves. Thus, when the collective and the group is hostile to unorthodox, visionary or mystic experiences, clearly it is more difficult for individuals to undertake the path with conviction. If the individual is too young, on the other hand, or too intellectual or completely immersed in the world, then the emergence of the spiritual dimensions of the deep psyche may not emerge. With myself, the type of experience I mentioned above lasted a considerable time, probably two years from the preparation, the central encounter, and its integration and expression after the vision, which in itself actually was very brief, a few hours. It felt like an initiation experience, which in essence was not dissimilar to that of the Gnostics the purpose of which is to lift the initiate to a higher level of perception so as to experience the transcendent and be reborn. For me, the experience of the light in the visionary experience downloaded, or rather it seemed to be downloading all the time, and had brought this world and all its life into existence. It seemed to come from a source outside of myself and to which I and all living creatures were connected, it could effortlessly communicate the purpose of existence, which was to celebrate the light and love all its manifestations. And at the time, this seemed completely clear. You might laugh and say, oh yes, like ascending the mountain seemed clear. And I laugh equally at the paradox, for of course, it was both extraordinarily difficult and easy at the same time. It felt as if an extraordinary energy this light had brought everything into existence. If there is one symbol that permeates all Gnostic mythologies more than any other, it is that of the light. From this time onwards, a certain spiritual energy and conviction was given to me, and also for periods of time there was an ease of access to certain knowledge which previously I had not had. Also aspects of my character became more pronounced, my emotionality became stronger, my eccentricity became freer, and a greater sense of freedom possessed me and gave me happiness, although I was ageing. Very importantly, the visionary experience did not simply evaporate, but continued, although far less intensely, to be with me and help reshape my life and give me a sense of fullness, gratitude, and a powerful sense of meaning and purpose. I must say that I didn't always live up to it. Grace is a good word for this. I feel able to move between religions and enjoy their archetypal essence, despite their difference. The initiation has continued to influence me and is like a deep well. Occasionally it gives me even ecstasy and I resonate with the words, you have drunk from my mouth and become intoxicated 
with the bubbling stream that I have measured out. Gospel of Thomas. Yes, that access to the truth can be intoxicating and lift one temporarily into even manic flight. I could go on, but suffice it to say that there is a great variety of spiritual or religious experience, as William James pointed out long ago, that occurs naturally inside human beings. It is a tragedy that so much of it has had a persecutory history. I believe that the essence of the Gnostic experience is one that will never disappear and will again play its part in the crises that are evolving in the 21st century as many individuals undertake the path of initiation into higher knowledge, gnosis. Such initiation rites are preceded by a period of preparation, a descent, a confrontation and an integration with the shadow, a meeting with the core of oneself, the visionary experience, and this classical initiation path, so central to the Gnostic tradition, is now conjoined with Jungian psychology, which has become a new container into which the ancient wisdom and myths have been poured. Mm -hmm.